everyone. Welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow, and I'm joined by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Ghostbuster? <laughs> Excited to be here. Uh, poor Ivan Reitman. Another one that I just did not mm. see coming at all. And it's like, uh, I, did you grow like I grew up twins, Ghostbusters. It was really like twins in kindergarten cop I had on repeat growing up. Big shout out to Ivan Reitman. He has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but he's been on my mind lately. Wait, Ivan Reitman died? Oh my God. Yeah, dude, like a few days ago. What? <laughs> oh boy. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh dude. wow. We're doing this in like real time. Yeah, man, a few days ago. <sighs> so, okay, we can get into it. We got, you know, meatballs, stripes, <sighs> twins, Ghostbusters one and two junior can't forget junior dude he's a comedic dave, genius i love dave with kevin klein yeah wow so you're just learning about this you've been oh i guess i mean the news cycle goes so quickly nowadays that okay so that's why you didn't no i was like he doesn't seem to be catching my references at all you were just like shaking your head like yeah twins yeah and i thought yeah, he's gone 75 years old uh. yeah Sorry to hit you with that. So much in my childhood. That's what I'm saying. I mean, if you're our age, like Ghostbusters was always there, but that was a thing before I was born. You know, that was already a mm -hmm. moving thing. I got to experience twins, really, and Kindergarten Cop was the big one for me because those also played yeah, on TV all the time, constantly, all the time. You could, I mean, any given weekend, you could find one of those on. And I, I actually just got our friend Dan to watch Kindergarten Cop for the first time, and he loved it. Yeah, yeah. He's like, there's something, a little bit of everything in it, and it all kind of works, and it does. Oh man. Well, cheers to Ivan Reitman. Hell of a career. Hell of a career. Absolutely. Again, that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about today. Today, we are introducing a new segment to the podcast, a new monthly segment called Criterion 22. This is going to be a new monthly segment because at the beginning of this year, 2022, I made a movie deal with myself that, very simple, I'm going to watch one film from the Criterion Collection a week for the entire year, and the only rule is that they have to be movies I have not seen. And in talking with you about this, you said you were more or less going to try to do the same thing, and we figured, why don't we pod about it? So we're already doing real great because we're folding January's episode into this one. <laughs> we were a bit like content heavy at the end of January, but from now on, once a month, we're going to check in about some great, great films. And this is something that we had been talking about since day one. Yeah. We knew that like as the podcast was going to go on, at a certain point, we really wanted to transition into this, into talking about world cinema that isn't necessarily at the forefront of conversations, but we feel like at this time... We've reached a point with all you mad movie buffs where you're actually asking for this as well. We've had so many different people talk to us about talking about European movies, talk about mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. types. And the Criterion Collection is really where you can find the most accessible way to find these movies right now. Yes, absolutely. And you touched on it well because you brought up a good point to me when I when we were formulating this Criterion 22 idea where you said – you know, like on the podcast, you're only talking about like one half of the movies you watch, which yeah. is true. Like there's a whole other B side of my mad movie life that I'm just constantly watching stuff. And, you know, I know I know Criterion movies aren't 
seen by a ton of people necessarily. So these are these monthly segments are going to be nerd movie nerd episodes in which we're really going to get down and like you said assess some world cinema that has always deserved a bigger audience. We're going to talk okay, so I'll start right at the beginning. I'm not going to do this for every segment, but just by way of, you know, setting the tone. The Criterion Collection is a home video distribution company that licenses, restores and releases quote unquote important classic and contemporary films. So, when we were kids, you would see like the thick Criterion DVD on the shelf at Best Buy and they were all always 40 bucks. Like no matter what, they were 39.99. Yeah. But usually Criterion was the only way you could see these movies. They wouldn't be released by any other distributor on home video. The people who work at Criterion are people who really truly care about movies. The way they re- restore them, the way they market them down to the covers of their DVDs and Blu-rays. I've literally purchased like 10 of these movies, at least 10, probably far more, based solely on how cool the cover looks. I mean, we could have, we could do an entire episode on our favorite Criterion covers. They're so cool. And we've been talking in the last few episodes organically about us missing DVDs, the art of mm-hmm. DVDs. Mm-hmm. And there, this is where the art is thriving, is that they are yeah. still producing Blu-rays and DVDs with special feature content that is better than anything that's previously out there or still going today. So this is where you can find commentaries, interviews, I mean, even talk, like anything you could want as a part of the Criterion Collection. Yeah, old like television appearances, which we reference for like the Husbands one, the John Cassavetes film Husbands. So basic translation, the Criterion Collection is for hardcore movie nerds, the cinephiles. They may be best known for releasing old movies, classics, foreign films, and some eccentric contemporary movies like Wes Anderson. He's a modern director who almost always gets uh, criterion treatment. The movies, like you said, often have really good special features that you can dive into. It is, it's the only collection, it's the only home video distribution company that's still really, really cares about that stuff. And I remember, for instance, when like Boyhood was being released on just kind of regular Blu-ray by their studio, didn't have any special features. And I'm like, I wonder, I don't know. And then Criterion picks it up because Criterion likes Richard Lankladder, picks it up and a ton of special features on that. So to some people, maybe that doesn't matter. But to people who love movies and love special features, that's what the Criterion Collection is for. That's who these episodes are for. So that's like the collection onto itself, which is a really cool thing. And that's what you can hold. Those are tangible objects. But thankfully, a few years ago, the Criterion Channel was set up, which is essentially Netflix for us mad movie buffs. It's a streaming service. It's an app. And my relationship with Criterion is so deep. It just, it is, I this brand is so responsible for fostering my extremely like deep cut movie sensibilities without them i would not have been introduced to so many films and they're really good what's really cool about them about the criterion channel is you get to see what your favorite filmmakers like is too because they'll interview people they'll even get people they'll even ask them to like introduce a movie and you can see the passion that some of your favorite filmmakers have about probably movies you may have never heard of and then that's reason enough to click on them and check them out and then away away we go 
And that's something that, you know, typically for when we start this series, we are going to be sticking to the Criterion Collection. But Mm -hmm. by way of starting this and trying to get everyone introduced to it, we are going to throw in some movie recommendations that are currently on the Criterion channel, just to kind of show you that this is what this channel has to offer. And if you are really interested in seeing some of these movies and you don't necessarily want to pay you know, 30 or $40 for the Criterion DVD Blu-rays, if you actually subscribe to the Criterion channel for just $9.99 a month, you get access to pretty much almost all of their actual Criterion collection and then crazy awesome stuff that you were just talking about. Well, that's what's nuts. That's what actually sets it apart from every other streaming service period is that this is the only streaming service I know that is uploading all of their special features to their platforms as well. So you can like watch a movie with a commentary. Like you can't do that on Netflix. You can't watch movies with commentary. Yeah. Can't watch making of features. It's yeah, it's really, really cool. And the channel, yeah, the channel doesn't just have movies from the Criterion Collection. They also have, they have difficult movies to find that genuinely I don't think are available anywhere else except on their streaming platform right now. I I doubt there's even a disc of them anywhere. That's what's cool. Those are, then we're talking deep, deep cut movies, some of which I've never even heard of and the directors I've never heard of. But rarely, if ever, have I clicked onto anything on this app and not had, and not had it be a worthwhile experience. I don't love every movie that's on there, but I'm always like, wow, I'm glad I watched that. I'm glad I spent my time with that. And I've spent 80 minutes on Criterion watching like Persona by Bergman. And I've spent six hours watching, you know, the Decalogue or something. You can just go down and down and down. It doesn't matter how much time you spend. It's always time well spent. Always. And that's what we're really trying to get at with this whole entire series is opening up a different perspective on the way you watch movies because watching anything by criterion kind of forces you to do that you you are going into something that is not normally the way that americans are typically presented with film so this is the start of a crazy cool journey that we hope you join with us and take with you new movies to start to watch. Yeah, and by and we're going to start our list here. We're going to dive in. By way of introducing these, I will just say like my dad is a really good film watcher. He's open to a lot of stuff. Some of these are not very accessible movies, but I've been telling him like I think you would like blank blank and he's watched everything I've told him to watch and he's loved them all. So I think I'm like <laughs> We should get advertising advertising <laughs> from the Criterion channel because I think I've just converted him. So now he's going to start on that one. He's like, great, another streaming platform. This is great. But to dive in here, it's really simple. I'm going to watch one movie a week all year. It's new to me. And that's really my only rule. For fun, I've created some, they're kind of loose monthly themes for myself. And for January, I was riding high, I was riding off the high of licorice pizza, and I decided to watch a few movies that heavily influence Paul Thomas Anderson. And first up is an outrageous work of art called Putney Swope from 1969. This is directed by Robert Downey Sr. It's Robert Downey Jr.'s dad. It's part of the Eclipse 33 spine of Criterion and Oh my, this is such a huge influence on PTA. I mean, this is an absurdist satirical comedy. It's fucking priceless. 
The movie, it's set like in a Mad Men type ad agency, and it begins with a board meeting, which is, of course, full of old white dudes and a lone black man named Putney Swope. So the chairman of the board drops dead right there, and everyone agrees, well, we got to vote on a new chairman right now. So we'll all vote. We'll all write the name down. And the only rule is you can't vote for yourself. So all these old white guys vote for Putney Swope because they assume no one's going to vote for the black guy. And oops. (laughs) So the black guy becomes chairman of the board. And this is all, I mean, absolutely outrageous satire. It's hilarious. It's, I could not believe like what I was watching very independently made. There's no way a studio would have backed this, but PTA influences Buck Swope. That's Don Cheadle's character in Boogie Nights is named after Putney Swope. Cosmo lighting the firecrackers off inside in Boogie Nights. That's directly from Putney Swope. Robert Downey Sr. is actually in Boogie Nights. He's the guy that says, um, that's a YP, not an MP, your problem, not mine. <laughs> John, uh, John C. Riley. Uh, YP, MP, I don't understand this industry jargon. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the best satires I've ever seen. And we've talked, a, we have a lot of love for satires on this podcast. So this is definitely would encourage you to watch this. And this is one I got my dad to watch and he thought he could not believe it. And he was just l- laughing hysterically the whole time. It is fantastic. And Robert Downey Sr. is a really, really great career to dive into Mm -hmm. if you don't know who he is. Yeah. And if your introduction is just listening to Robert Downey Jr. talk about it, Robert Downey Jr. has a whole entire relationship to the screenwriting process that he has because of growing up with his dad. Yeah. He throws out with whatever's given to him and rewrites it himself (laughs) because he's like, I can do it better. Right. Like, I I respect what you've just done, but I grew up with my dad. I've been doing this since I was eight. I'm going to do this better. And- for better or worse, that's 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 the way he works. <laughs> yeah, and there's themes of that in Putney Swope, definitely. So that's it, it was so it's also really cool to watch a movie like that and go, wow, this like tiny black and white avant-garde satirical movie from 1969 is all over Paul Thomas Anderson's work. You will see direct lifts that he's pulled from this movie and put into his work. I love that stuff. Next one that he really highly recommends is a love story called I Know Where I'm Going from 1945, directed by the great duo Michael Powell and Edward Pressburger. Yeah, I knew you liked them. This is number 94 of Criterion, so a pretty early one. It's a really lovely movie about a woman who really believes what the title of the movie dictates, but then she finds herself stuck when life gets in the way. The movie's basically about the woman trying to get to her new fiance, but he's stuck on an but she gets stuck on an island due to bad weather. She's so desperate to get to him that she's literally willing to risk other people's lives to do so. And again, what's so funny to watch about these movies is that I'm sitting here watching this and I'm like, why do I know this? I've never seen this before, but like I've seen this. And then I realize this was remade as leap year with Amy Adams in 2010, oh. which I saw in the like I think the theater when it came out. I hadn't seen it since. I even skipped that one when we did our Amy Adams podcast. But I was like, yeah. So you, I, I don't even know if leap year officially credits. I know where I'm going as being a remake, but it's it's the exact same movie. So, but really, I know where I'm going. Best known, oh my god, for its incredible outdoor landscape cinematography. 
Doesn't sound like a big deal now. Huge deal in 1945. And that is why Powell and Pressburger were masters. Um, Great editing, great montages in this movie. But really, the outdoor photography was game-changing at the time. And speaking of these two, Powell and Pressburger, I know you had some experience with them, too, over the past few months. Dude, the red shoes. Oh, man. Oh, God. Holy shit. So good, right? Like mesmerizing. 1948. Yep. Mesmerizing. So the way this movie came into my life is that a friend of mine, we were talking about our favorite movies. Mm -hmm. And this is always a conversation I like to get into with people because I feel like when I find out what your favorite movie is, I get to know something about you. Mm -hmm. It's very indicative of a person's personality and their makeup like what kind of what what kind of charges them mm-hmm. she pointed out to me the red shoes and i was like well i'm gonna go watch it and i at first i thought i was getting into a musical mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i was like oh boy, oh boy. Uh, i'm not the biggest <laughs> fan um but i found out that it was not that Mm-mm. and what i went through was just a stunning mesmerizing was the right word i i mean and I couldn't believe I was watching something from 1948, man. That's the thing. Yeah. Like outside yeah. of just some of like the fashion looks and styles of the time period, it looked like anything you might even see today. Mm-hmm. I mean, Technicolor does have a certain type of like dated look to it. But in terms of what the cinematography was doing, yes. in terms of just the way that people were with each other, I'm like, this is not an old movie. This mm-hmm. is a This is a current movie. I mean, when you just get to halfway through, there's a whole ballet sequence that I, I just don't think that there's anything. It's one of the most visually striking and impressive sequences I've ever seen in any movie. Full stop. Yeah. yeah. Boom. It's incredible. And then out just outside of that, you're just talking about art and love. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the movie, that's what the themes revolve around. And it's around these three people played by Anton Walbrook, Moira Shearer, and Marius Goring, who are all fantastic in it. And it spans time in a way that you and I both love. Oh, yeah. Where it does not tell you how much time has passed between scenes. But as each scene happens, you gather, oh, maybe a week has passed, maybe a day, or maybe this has actually been a couple months. That's just the way the story's moving. That's it's so funny you say that. That's a huge selling point for probably my favorite movie I'm going to talk about today. It, it is just mm. that exactly. And that is like closer to give a contemporary version does that too. Yeah. And you just get through careful dialogue like, oh, oh, a week's passed. Oh, a year's passed. Oh, it's been. That is a, I love the way they handle that in the red shoes. Yeah. And it's just really watching the three of these characters and how they feel about their art and their own personal love Mm -hmm. and what that is and when that gets complicated and then all the while revolving around this ballet phenomenon that is sweeping seemingly mostly Europe by storm, but really they go to America too, the world. But also one thing I found out about this movie that really means something to me is that as I was talking to my uncle about this movie, I found out through him that this is my grandmother's favorite movie. Oh, wow. Wow. So that's something I never knew about her. And I I was really, really floored by this. And I really love that these people that I know in my life that this movie meant this much to is now reflective of that. And it makes me love it even more. 
what a great favorite movie for grandma, you know, like the red yeah. shoes. Oh, yeah, Powell and Pressburger. So that's only three years after I know where I'm going. And the red shoes does not look and sound like a movie made in 1948. It's incredible. The movie they made the year before that, Black Narcissus, is Oh my God. It's so, it's about like heated tensions between nuns at a school and uh, Jack Cardiff, who also shot, he won the Oscar for shooting Black Narcissus. He also shot Red Shoes. I, I don't know how they get those colors to pop like that. Their textures are just so, so rich. And it's a major selling point for them as filmmakers. I mean, great ending in the Red Shoes. Oh God. Oh. Do you know about Michael Powell? Do you know, have you looked him up anymore? So this is the fascinating thing is like on the Criterion channel, like they have all of their movies. Yeah. yeah. But then I started noticing if you really go back, there's like one or two that just say Michael Powell. Uh And then the rest of them are all Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I, I really wonder how this partnership happened. Well, they yeah, they made movies for a while. But at one point, Powell decides to go off and make movies on his own. And he makes this movie called Peeping Tom in 1960. And this is essentially the first slasher movie. And this is I mean, this is one of the most tragic like stories in cinema. He releases this movie and it ruins his life and his career because it is so controversial and so hated by critics that it just completely ruins him. And then in a few short years, not even that long later, it becomes and has still and still remains one of the biggest cult movies of all time. It's genuinely con- wow. it's considered a classic now, thanks largely in part to people like Martin Scorsese, who were saying like in the 70s, he was saying, you have this all wrong. This is not controversy. This is pure cinema right here. You have this. And he kind of, Marty was largely responsible for like helping Powell get his life back on track to the point where Thelma Schoonmaker married Michael Powell until he died. They got married in like 84. Isn't that great? Really? Yep. yep, Oh, wow. So all, yeah, like all in the family there. So Powell and Pressburger were these Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to find these movies now. I'm like, yeah, go show grandma the red shoes. Like, all you have to do is buy the DVD. Like, back in 50s, 60s, you couldn't rewatch these movies. So you would get this reputation of, wow, what a classic. But when Peeping Tom, when something like that came out, you just got marred in controversy. Like, people wouldn't be able to go back and revisit it. And then people like Scorsese are like, no, you all are wrong. You need, it's not fair what you've done to this man, to him as a person and as a director. So, yeah, cr- just crazy story all around. But, wow, what what a pair of directors and what a director himself. Whew. Well, you introduced Rockers because I've never seen this one. So this is a movie, so we're, we are veering off a little bit. This is not a Criterion Collection movie. This is just currently on the Criterion channel. But just to kind of show you as an example of what types of movies that are out there is this movie called Rockers. <laughs> dude, this movie, dude, you you have to see this. Oh, you yeah? will absolutely love it because you've been to Jamaica. It's mm-hmm. one of your favorite vacation spots. I love it. You love all of that culture, reggae. I mean, this is a true like reggae roots movie. It's all about this guy. <laughs> who just wants his bike. He's he's a he sells records. He's a part of a band and he wants to get a bike to help further sell records to farther away places. Mm-hmm. And and then over the course of the movie, it's just his bike keeps keeps getting taken away from him. Oh man. And then he keeps getting it back and it's taken away from him. And that's basically the whole movie. <laughs> but watching this guy flow in between 
his community and um, the music. And it also speaks to the, you know, the oppression, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the racial fuel um, that was really, really fueling the whole entire reggae movement. So this is a movie that was 1978, directed by, well, I'm going to butcher this name, Theodoros Balafukos. Good job. And so what Tough the Criterion one. Channel did was they put together a collection of reggae roots movies. And this is one of them. But when I first moved to L.A., I would go to reggae parties with a friend of mine who lived in Malibu. Nice. And he would every week throw reggae parties where there would just be reggae music and there'd always be an old school Rasta movie on. And this was one of them. And I got sucked into it, but I could never for the life of me remember what it was called. So for years, I have been like remembering this movie, quoting it. And then finally, Criterion brings it on and I go, Oh my God, I think this is the movie. And it was. That is the best feeling. Oh. oh, I love that. When you discover shit like that, I love that so much. Well, I mean, you definitely sold me because I never I never heard of it. And and again, yeah, a, perhaps an important distinction. This is not part of the Criterion Collection. But what's so cool about that channel is that they'll make those really cool collections like on their channel and you can just go scroll scroll through them. I saw so many like cool... Uh, what, like home invasion movies. I don't know, just crazy shit. Yeah. It's a really good way to discover them like that. So, all right, I'm sold. I'm definitely going to watch this. And yeah, I love Jamaica. I love Jamaican culture. Absolutely. All right, next up for me, I'm still on my PTA kick here. PTA influences kick. Stray Dog, 1949, oh. directed by Akira Kurosawa. This is criterion number 233. Have you seen this? I have seen the uh, follow-up remakes. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Both of them. Well, that's okay. Great great way to introduce that because i and i'm going to do a whole kurosawa month for criterion 22 coming up shortly because i do have gaps in his filmography but wow stray dog this is essentially like the first buddy cop film it's about a rookie cop who loses his gun and tries to find it in the streets for a direct pta influence see magnolia john c Riley loses his gun mm-hmm. and Another thing, though, like Stray Dogs is really funny. It's a really funny buddy cop movie. Kurosawa could be funny when he wanted to. And you follow the gun as it makes its way through various crimes to the point where this was so cool. It's so detailed to we to where we are literally counting how many bullets are left in the gun and how much damage that can inflict. So... It's interesting that in movies like this today, bullet count means nothing. Body count means nothing. But in Kurosawa's world, literally every bullet is a potentially deadly weapon. So every one of them has to be accounted for. And yeah, I'm I'm watching this and I'm like, yep, yet another masterpiece by one of the grand masters of film. Like one of the top three just masters to ever do it. And this was I and this might even be my earliest Kurosawa now because Rashomon 1950, but oh man, god, I love Stray Dog. I love this movie. And that's such a cool device to use that I feel like it's so simple. But mm-hmm. there's an idea that you only have x amount of whatever the movie is kind of presenting as importance. Yeah. And the stakes are that high for it. So, you know, in this case, you know, yeah, you've these bullets and you've only got this. Yeah, because now as an audience member, you are just watching 
everything matters. Right. You're like, oh, man, now we're only down to this. We're down to that. And that's just captivating, no matter who you are. Like, if you're involved in the story, that device is going to carry you through all the way to the end, even if the movie's bad. Yeah, yeah. Not that this would be. That was Kurosawa. Right, exactly. And just seeing that that theme, that idea, that concept we see so much now of, like, the older detective who's tired, he's done with the job, but he's sarcastic. And then the young rookie who makes some mistakes and you pair them up to see that this is like one of the first movies to do it really successfully. You're like, wow, what? I mean, he probably didn't even know he was going to start an entire subgenre of movies. It's crazy. Yeah. I haven't seen any of the remakes. They're not great. Oh, yeah. I didn't. (laughs) I would assume not. But hey, whatever. Next on my list, rounding out January, I can't believe I had missed this one before. It's called The Earrings of Madame De. This is 1953 by Max Ophus, spine number 445. Wow. The main selling point here, game-changing cinematography, extremely long takes, including the opening shot. The camera, it, the camera is moving so much. I can't imagine the track work that was put down for this this is one i have a few i work with a few cinematographers a few dps they all know about this one even if they don't like know movies that well this is just this changed cinematography and talking about passage of time my god basically in this movie we watch as madame de we never hear her last name on purpose it's really cool but she's given a pair of earrings and we see these earrings swap possession something like 18 times before the film's end and We're talking about passage of time. This movie moves so quickly and so well, it's impossible to be bored. If anything, I wanted to rewind it and go, oh, did they? Okay, so now we're moving from this person to this person. Phantom Thread is all over this. I imagine he had this movie on repeat when he was making Phantom Thread. It's just the the really sly humor, the way it, like literally the way the camera moves sometimes. Uh, there's a love triangle in this. It ends in a duel. This is not a boring movie. This is a really, really fun movie. Okay, two biggest selling points right here. In my research, I found that a PTA said this was one of his all-time favorites, and he said this was the first movie to move the camera in this way. Nothing he had seen had done it like this before. Also in my research, I discovered that The Earrings of Madame De is the all-time favorite film of none other than Stanley Kubrick. What? Selling point, I save that for the end, but that's reason enough to go see it. And, I mean, you know, of course, oh. there'll probably be conflicting reports about that, but... I found a few that said like this was, if not his favorite, right up there. And like Barry Lyndon, right down to the duel at the end. It's all over this, all over it. But, you know, I get it. Like not everyone wants to sit down and watch this movie. It's in French, a French black and white movie from the 50s. Like I get it. The, this isn't for everyone. But if you are a fan of movies, we're only recommending movies here that are like exciting. We're not recommending duds or slow stuff or stuff that's boring or that you're gonna feel the weight of this thing moves so quickly that this is what i watched twice because i'm like okay now that i know where everything's going i know where these damn earrings end up and how everyone ends up let me go back now that i don't have to like catch up to take everything in it just moves very quickly when a lot of movies from the 50s don't you know (laughs) they're just kind (laughs) of stuck and a little slow a lot of slow this one is not it's great Dude, I love this so much. Oh, man. This is going to have to go right up on there in the queue because I remember even us talking on our Stanley Kubrick podcast Mm -hmm. about wondering what could possibly be some of his biggest influences because he never really talked about those things. Not much, no. He was a fan of all movies, but yeah, he just loved this one. Yeah, yeah. 
It blows my mind. Way back when, I can't remember what podcast it was, but you had made reference to this movie, and you were like, Nick, you have to watch yeah. this. Like, of, of all the movies that I always tell you to watch that you don't, <laughs> this is the one that you need to watch. It was the the Women Make Film bonus episode we did. That was a while yes, ago. Yes, that's what it was. A long time ago. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. And so the elusive movie that I'm referring to is 1970s Wanda, directed oh. by Barbara Loden, the only movie that this woman directed. And she directed this. She wrote, directed, and starred in this movie in 1970. I just kind of want to keep saying mm-hmm. that. 1970. I mean, this is a this is a an essential '70s movie for sure. But just to think that where women were at at that time period, mm-hmm. and to tell a a true woman's story like this, which is not pretty, it is not glamorizing oh, oh. in any way. As a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite. Yeah. It's it made me. She made me so mad. Oh mm-hmm. my god! Like she infuriated me because I'm like, you are just a. You were just a bad person. <laughs> like you were kind of like this flawed, certainly. And so basically, I'm trying to really wrap my head around the way to explain this movie is that it's really just this woman who is wandering through life and she has completely neglected all of her responsibilities as a mother, as a wife, as a friend. She is just completely gone off the rails, mm-hmm. but not in a way where she is into drugs or into anything like that. She's just kind of stepped away from life. Mm-hmm. And and we just watch her as she does this. We know what bothered me so much about watching is brilliant performance by her part is how slow she moves. Yeah. yeah. It speaks so well to this character, this character study that she has. But when, when she's walking... She's like it's an like, animal, girl, she, like lost, like discovering everything yeah. for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Just to interject really quickly, that theme of watching a woman just like check out and be like, I'm I'm abandoning responsibility from stuff. Did not see that in 1970. Not from a woman. No. We saw countless movies of men doing that. Still do. But that's why this movie Still was such do. a big deal. Because we had, sent, we had seen so many movies like that of men. But to see a woman do that, whoa. And a woman directed it. And she wrote it. Whoa. And it, ch- it challenges all these ideals and values mm-hmm. that we have somewhat put up for ourselves. Like, how could a woman do this? Exactly. Exactly. And it just, like, of course a woman could do this. She's a human being. All human beings are capable of doing anything. Yeah. And everything. It's not something that human beings don't do, but to see a woman do it so uh, unflinchingly and without making a message about it, without trying to do anything, just letting it be as it is. So at some point in the movie, she again wanders into a situation going on at a bar because she doesn't really have a home. She doesn't really have anywhere to go. She's just sort of going moment to moment and she ends up in this bar where you don't know what's going on there's a guy behind the right behind the bar mm-hmm. and she he wants her out it's closing time that's what he's saying to her she uses the bathroom we're just kind of going like what is going on here and all of a sudden the camera reveals that there's a body behind the bar on the ground yep. and that we are in the midst of what is a robbery mm-hmm my jaw dropped. Yeah, exactly. Because the whole exactly. entire time, 
I have no idea. And she's like trying to order something because she's always trying to get like you're like right. she's an animal. Yeah, yeah. She's just she's just trying to get whatever necessity she can, like peanuts, a beer, food, shelter, water. Yes. And yeah. then we find out that this is all actually a robbery. And I'm like. Uh, and I just love when movies reveal life things like this because there's no reason for it. Mm-hmm. That's just what's happened. Okay, now we're in the middle of a robbery and then the movie goes from yeah. here. And it's just really, really great storytelling in, in ways where it's sort of like I think about myself as the writer and be like, how do I want to do this scene? Mm-hmm. What could possibly happen? What if it's in the middle of a robbery? What if? Yeah, what if? Why Boom. not? Yeah, sky's the limit. I learned about Wanda from Amy Zemetz, one of my favorite people in Mm -hmm. film and TV right now. Go watch her in Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. She's great. You know, we're not like ranking these movies we're talking about or grading them. The best thing I can say, the best like selling point or grade that I could give any of the movies we're talking about is, did I watch it, say, on the Criterion channel and then buy it? immediately after on blu-ray because i wanted to own that thing even though i can watch all of wanda's special features on the website i wanted to be able to hold that thing and say it's part of my collection and i did and there's a there's one movie i'm going to talk about that also has that distinction but wanda i'm so i'm just so glad you like this barbara loden i'm so glad you watched it yeah barbara loden is um you know, she had the great misfortune of being married to one of the biggest all-time Hollywood shitheads, Elia Kazan. And I've been reading um, a lot of autobiographies lately. Nick Nolte, Frank Langella, Kirk Douglas. They don't have a lot in common, but they definitely all agree that Elia Kazan was a masterful filmmaker and a total piece of shit in real life. And it just doesn't sound like he made her life very easy. And by all accounts, that is largely the reason why she only directed one film. And that sucks, sucks. But what a movie. I'm so, th- this is why Criterion is great. Never would have heard about this movie if it wasn't for them. This is a movie that should be talked about a lot more than it is. Yes. Yeah. I, I always put this in the um, feels like a movie Cassavetes could have made but didn't. Yeah. So again, this is just another really quick offshoot onto the channel, not the collection, is that on the channel, they've also got shorts. Mm-hmm. They got short films. And Eric Romer is a is a widely renowned director. And so one of his earliest work from 1951 is this little black and white short film called Presentation or Charlotte and Her Steak. <laughs> like it's hard to kind of talk about it because it's just such a very very simple set of to me I think it's a great example of what you can do on film if you have absolutely no budget for anything and all you have is a camera and an actor a couple actors and a space but it's essentially it's a poem really it's a it's a film poem and I just thought it was just a really really fascinating way of depicting male and female dynamics in terms of seduction and desire and that hunter uh, and prey and how it can be reversed, like kind of encapsulates all of those things in a less than 10 minute short film. So again, just kind of wanted to point out that this is the type of stuff that Criterion likes to celebrate. And this is just on the channel. And Eric Romer is a director of the 
I believe he's got quite a few Criterion collections. Yeah, it's it's funny that I've never seen an Eric Romer movie. He is one of my biggest gaps of oh, any director yes. because people who love him, I, I know people who love him like I love Bergman. So people will rep him so yeah. hard. And actually, I'll do a little tease here. In May of 2022, that is my Eric Romer Criterion 22 month. So I'm going to watch his six moral tales. And that's that's going to oh. be my I'm diving right in. But yeah, he the Criterion reps him really hard. And whenever I see like, wow, they have a they have a, a ton of Bergman movies, if not every movie ever made because of that amazing huge collection they have they have probably every kurosawa movie there's a few directors they have yeah. their entire filmographies for they have a shitload of eric romer so it's you know i've always known when are you gonna do this like in 2020 i hadn't seen in a tarkovsky film or if i had like i really didn't have a good memory of it and i'm like there's seven of these this is changing now so i watched them you know, watched them all and felt way better in as a film nut having watched them. So yeah, really excited to get into him. But honestly, this will probably be the first thing I watch. It's only 10 minutes. So why not? Yeah, of course, I'm gonna watch this rockers. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna like this, especially as an introduction to Eric Romer. Because <laughs> I've seen this will now be the third thing I've seen from him. I've seen one two other movies. And both of those movies are movies that I yeah, you were absolutely going to enjoy. So this is a great way to start. Oh, I've always heard that. Okay, I'm really looking forward to that month too. All right, well, that was it for January. If we would have recorded this in January, then those are the movies we would have discussed. But we'll move on to February 2022. My personal made-up theme here was Crazy Love, you know, Valentine's Day, all that stuff. So I started with Beauty and the Beast from 1946, one of the first ever Criterion films, number six in their catalog, directed by the great Jean Cocteau. This is, of course, based on the 1757 story, Beauty and the Beast. We've seen this. How many versions of this have I seen? There was the TV series in the 80s with Linda Hamilton yeah. and Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman. The Disney film, of course, 1991. First film, first animated film ever nominated for Best Picture. This one, 1946. This is a gorgeous gothic movie. The production design is so good. There's this smoky, atmospheric cinematography. But really, if you're a fan of like monster movies and that vibe of those old movies the practical effects in this film I, I know i now know why they have been studied so much just to see the transformations like i don't even have the language to describe what they're doing because they're such old techniques but it is all done in camera this is 1946 they're not like putting this on an editing computer and throwing all the effects on there it's so cool to watch that stuff it might be a little like clunky it's not necessarily the smoothest transition sometimes i don't care it's just so freaking cool to watch so i had a blast not only watching this but then telling people how much i loved it and them going and i i've surprised at least four people with them not knowing that this was a movie first they thought the disney thing was first and i'm like no if you go back that's it's the same thing as the cartoon it's just you know not animated and doesn't have songs but otherwise it's pretty much the same it's great have you seen it? No, I mean I've seen I've seen the Disney version, and uh, and and the eighties. Oh yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. All right, next up for me. Wow, this was a great decision. The best decision I've made so far in this Criterion binge: The Honeymoon Killers from nineteen sixty nine, directed by Leonard Castle. It is number two hundred of the Criterion. This is a movie about the infamous Lonely Hearts Killers. It was a couple who frauded and murdered widowed women in the 1940s. This movie was made in 1969, and this thing is brutal. 
it's I, I can't believe some of the content in it. And it has this laser sharp editing that is so confident with the passage of time that I would often have to, I'd be having to pay attention and go, oh my God, that's stuff they were talking about doing. They already did that. And they just didn't show us. Oh, they just cut that out. Or they start a scene like way after all the expository dialogue has already happened. And you're just in there and you're like, whoa, okay, I'm, I'm that thing they were planning. They skipped over like those eight other scenes that any other director would show me. And now we're right into the, the heart of it, the thing, the action. Wow. Shirley Stoller and Tony Lo Bianco, they play the leads. This movie, it has a few really, really memorable posters that always caught my attention. So that's why I watched it. And it's it's just one of those infamous Criterion films that I never checked out, but I'd seen everywhere. I watched it on Valentine's Day. It was great. There's a hammer kill oh. in the movie that takes place on Valentine's Day Eve. Oh, it's so yes. brutal. So I was like, wow, what a great pick. And I mean, that this movie never would have been made even three years earlier. Um, some cool facts about it. It's an indie movie to the core. Leonard Castle was a an opera writer and director, and he wrote this, and they were having a lot of trouble finding a director. So 1969, they hired this kid, Marty Scorsese. He had just made his first movie, huh. Who's That Knocking at My Door? They hired Marty. They had 150 k in seven weeks to shoot, and after f- the first week, Marty's just taking forever. He's like doing the Marty thing, like getting all the insert shots, taking forever to film scenes. So they fired him. And it's like, I mean, they could have never known what would have happened later. But Leonard Castle steps in to direct. This is the only directing credit he ever had. This is it. Wow. One movie. I told you that I have the best selling point ever for you personally for this movie. And that is that this is an amazing John Cassavetes movie that John Cassavetes never made. He is all over it. You will absolutely love it. So watching this movie is justification enough for doing this series because I'm watching it and I'm like, I'm so happy I'm watching this. This movie rocks. Immediately watch it after because the passage of time is something that it's very engaging. You have to keep up with it. And that makes the second viewing a little easier. But I mean, some of the content mm-hmm. is just like, these two are nuts. They're crazy. I told my dad about this one. He watched it. It was, <laughs> it was great. It's great. And it's actually on HBO Max right now, too. HBO Max is pretty good about having some Criterion movies. So I think it's on there. But yeah, I love this movie. Dude, that sounds amazing. You 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 already sold me on it even before the Cassavetes mm-hmm. bit, but I mean, as soon as Scorsese was yeah. like like helming it at first, that's wild. And I watched the special features and found the few sequences he directed, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. This is not a movie like that's worried about the perfections of stuff. You know, it's got a Mikey and Nicky vibe to it in that way. Like they're just uh, they got it down. 150k is not a lot of money. Wasn't a lot of money back then to make a movie. But yeah, Honeymoon Killers. Really quick, you just said it. Mikey and Nikki also on the yes, Criterion Collection. Yes, it is. 100% see oh, that. Oh, God. What a great... That was one of the... That was another one. Watched it and then immediately bought the Blu-ray. And what a great decision yep. just to have it. So there's this hilarious like story, ongoing thing we have where I, for the life of me... <laughs> I mentioned Leo McCary's Make Way for Tomorrow on the podcast. I even think it was during a bonus episode way back when. And you didn't mention anything then. You never texted me about it. It was never anything. And then like months later, I come to LA, come to your apartment. It's just sitting there like on your shelf, on your rack. And I'm like, how did you hear about this movie? Did you hear about this from me on the podcast? Or And then you tell the rest because I still don't know. <laughs> so this is crazy how this happened is... um. 
this is way before the podcast. This is like 2000 and I want to say 17. Oh, wow. I was looking for inspiration for the script I was writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for a movie that had to deal with old people. I started doing like a little bit of just like Googling research and all of this. And I went to Barnes Noble because they were having one of their awesome flash monthly November sales right. that they offered like 50% off. And so I see this make way for tomorrow, like 1937. Man, this is going back. <laughs> and so I buy it, but I was in the middle of writing and I was like, I need something. I need some type of inspiration. That's right. This movie that I got. Oh my God, dude. Like it is just the saddest movie in mm-hmm. the most beautiful way. Like it's mm-hmm. not like, so the story is about this old couple, two actors named Victor Moore and Beulah Bondi who are young actors, not young, but younger than what they are portrayed. And they put them in makeup. Yep. Coming from theater, I just really appreciate that style of like, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And these two actors pull it off beautifully. But it's about these two old people who have these children. Times are tough. They lose their home. And their kids, they basically separate them. Mm -hmm. Now these, this couple who have been together for over 50 years, they have to go and be away from each other. Unbelievably beautiful and so well done. Um, Orson Welles said it was the saddest movie ever made. He said that this picture could make a stone cry. And it's also a movie that we just don't really see a lot of movies made about old people. Mm-mm, true. Like, like we don't really value age and wisdom in the way that uh, I think times used to. And this movie really, really puts that idea at the forefront of honoring what that is. For 1937, Jesus, we're not far away from that being 100 years old. Yeah. It's yeah. such a worthwhile movie to see. Yeah, it really is. And that that was my experience with it, too. It's so funny that we never connected on that before I watch it, because I watched that as part of my 2020 Oscar binge. And... It's it's funny because Leo McCary, he's a very well-known director, and he actually won Best Director that year in 1937 for The Awful Truth. And when, uh. he, when he accepted the award, he said, thanks, but you gave it to me for the wrong picture. He thought Make Way oh. for Tomorrow was the best movie he ever made, and I agree. It's, it's a genuine early Hollywood masterpiece. Orson Welles is right. Like, if that final scene doesn't move you, oh my goodness. And this is my, actually, my way into this is Tokyo Story, because this was remade as Tokyo Story by Ozu in 1953. That's a really popular movie in, like, nerdy cult movie status worlds. Like, in the Criterion, I would say that's talked about more than Make Way for Tomorrow. But, yeah, wow. It's just, it's genuinely one of the best endings I've ever seen to a movie. And Uh I can't believe that he was able to pull that off in 1937. Wow. The last offshoot from the Criterion channel, which we alluded to earlier, is that some there's only one place where you can see some of these movies. And currently, right now, on the channel, this is the only place that you've ever been able to see this movie. Yep. It's a yep. streaming exclusive. Mm-hmm. Is 1994's What Happened Was, dot, 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 directed by Tom Noonan. The great character actor, Tom Noonan. People, I don't know if people know who that is. You know, he was the bad guy in uh, Manhunter, Michael Mann's Manhunter, of course. Yep. Uh, Last Action Hero, Lest Last Action Hero. Um, he 
kind of played Philip Seymour Hoffman in Schenectady, New York. He, I mean, he has a gazillion credits to his name. If you look him up, you will know his face right away. But yeah, the only movie yeah. he directed. Great little film. He terrified me in Last Action Hero. Gave me nightmares. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite movies as a kid. I Oh, my God. I love Last Action Hero. And he is fucking so terrifying. Uh, and, terrifying. And then when they when he meets him, like they're Tom Newton at the end, like the real guy. Oh, God. It's just great. It's great. I know there's a complete side quest on this, but it's amazing that when you see that guy and like what he looks like in his stature for even a movie like Last Action Hero, for this guy to be intimidating to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm hmm. Like, that's how good of an actor he is. Like Exactly. He, he makes you feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger is not going to come out of this alive. Yeah, and he's like this it's, rail thin guy. And he's just, yeah. Arnold's like, this is peak Arnold. Yeah, that's why he, yes. Yeah, that's peak exactly Arnold. Why he's such a good actor. God, I love Last Action so, Hero. So, uh, so what happened was, <laughs> this movie, what happened was, is a very, very contained piece of just two actors it takes place in one apartment building and the whole entire idea they're these two co-workers who are having their first date and that's it that's the movie and we are in this apartment with them until the date ends and what follows is probably one of the i i mean i texted you right after i saw this and i go this was a doozy mm -hmm. Because it starts out, and in my opinion, it felt kind of clunky. I was like, all right, we're just kind of getting through this. And then at a midpoint, the movie just takes a turn. And we go into what could possibly be one of the best monologue stories I've ever seen on film. And it's all pretty much due to the writing and performance. And then from that point on, the movie just cooks, at least for me, it just cooks all the way through. But... After when it's over, I realized that that beginning part of it was necessary to get to that midpoint. And then it made me appreciate all of the scenes that came before it even more. So I feel like this movie would do really, really well on a rewatch. An actor with the writing is what we see here. And oh, God, it's so good. Yeah, I'm so glad he got to make it. And it's really you... And I talking about it really made me want to check it out again because, yeah, this is the only place you can watch it. It's crazy. It's always interesting when a movie has a sort of slow start and then something big happens that disrupts everything and then makes you, of course, rethink what you've just seen. And you're like, damn it, they did that on purpose. Yes, they <sighs> did. Uh, yeah, I just, they got me. Yeah, The Hand of God, the Netflix documentary or the Netflix movie for best international feature film. It does that, too. Kind of a slow. Did you like it? Yeah, it has a slow-ish beginning, and then something really big happens that changes the narrative and makes the last hour go by faster than the first hour. But I watched all those movies, and that was yeah, it, it was a good one. I'm glad it's nominated for sure. All right, here we go. We got three left for Criterion 22. First up is a nice double feature. So all that heaven allows, 1955, Douglas Sirk. This is the 95th movie of the Criterion Collection. Another one that while I'm watching it, I'm like, I've seen this before. I don't know why. This stars Jane Wyman, who this was a few years after she won her Oscar for Johnny Belindo, which I love. I can't believe that movie got made. She played Ray Milan's girlfriend in The Lost Weekend. She was married to Ronald Reagan in the 40s. I just love her. 
<laughs> she has the best, biggest, most expressive eyes. There's a scene in All That Heaven Allows, I swear, that her eyes are so big and the camera's so tight on her, you can see the set lights reflecting in her eyes. Like, oh, she's oh, just... I love that. I lo- she's one of my favorite old Hollywood stars. And this is a movie about a widow in a chatty New England town who falls for a man from a slightly lower financial class, played by Rock Hudson. First off, again, I'm like, watching this and going, why have I seen this before? And then I realize Todd Haynes essentially remade this as Far From Heaven in 2002. And I go, oh, and what really clued me into that is because if you haven't, you really haven't experienced color on film until you've seen a Douglas Sirk movie because the colors are so damn rich. There's, and even the costumes, like characters wear these blindingly blue dresses. I mean, the the color of All That Heaven Allows is there scenes when there's arguments inside in a living room and everything's really dark and yellow and right outside the windows it's very blue which is directly and far from heaven so it's actually something I've done too which I stole from far from heaven but look at that I stole it from all that heaven allows and didn't even know yep <laughs> this you stole it from heaven exactly this is rock hudson the year before giant and written on the wind there's a dancing scene and all that heaven allows in which he's genuinely goofy and it's not something you saw from leading men in 1955 and it you know it's a really important question honestly not unlike make way for tomorrow in which how important is it to prioritize yourself over what over the decisions others are making for you because are you gonna do yourself a disservice if you pay attention to people you love even if they're not giving you that good of advice so it was If you're a fan of Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven, I guarantee you will like this one. But another really cool aspect of this is that there's this German film from 1974 that I've always heard of and never seen called Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. I've always heard of this movie. I had no idea this movie was a remake of All That Heaven Allows. And I'm like, huh? A Rainer Warner Fassbender is my first Fassbender yeah. movie. Yeah, it's a Fassbender movie. Exactly, my first Fassbender He's a, he was a really prolific German filmmaker. And I'm like, what? Why would he remake a Douglas Sirk movie? But so I knew I was going to watch these in the same day, back to back. And it's the same general concept, but the woman in Ali Fear Eats the Soul is much, much lonelier. She doesn't have any friends. She's not well off. And the age difference between the two is much wider. Most significantly in Ali Fear Eats the Soul, the man is black and the woman is white, which is an even stronger indicator for Far From Heaven, in which Julianne Moore is white, Dennis Haysbert is black. There's so much contained sadness in the performances in Ali Fear Eats the Soul. It's like this woman has resigned to the fact a long time ago that she's just going to spend the rest of her life alone. And then one day she decides she doesn't want to do that. And she meets a man, a black man. And while she has no prejudice toward him, toward Ali, she's completely ignorant to the fact that anyone else would. And that, you know, creates major problems in and of itself. Believe me, this movie contains things that would never be found in an American film in 1974. It it was really cool. I'm using this series to check off these boxes. I've, I've wanted to see this movie from high school. I've always heard, you know, great German new wave cinema. I, ne- I genuinely never knew until researching it that it was a remake because that's the movie I was going to watch first. And then I found out that, oh, it's a remake of All That Heaven Allows. I got it. That's on the Criterion Collection. I got to do that. <laughs> so just two fun ones to watch back to back. 
especially if you're a fan of Far From Heaven. I love the title, All That Heaven Allows. That's a great title. Yeah, and it makes sense within the movie. It makes sense within context of the film. All right, last one. I'm going out with, well, why not go out with an NC-17 Spanish film called Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down by the great Pedro Almodovar. Uh, this is number 722 of Criterion. This is pure Almodovar. I love him so much. I watched this one because I've been on a parallel mother's high since I watched that. Really deserving of all its Oscar nominations. But Almodovar, so this is the earliest. Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down is the earliest Almodovar I've seen now, but... In 1999, he started, he goes, this is his streak, all about my mother, talk to her, bad education, Volver, broken embraces, the skin I live in. That was 99 to 2011, and that is a perfect stretch of films. So I've loved him from those movies, and now when he releases a new movie like Pain and Glory, Antonio Banderas was nominated for an Oscar for that. I'll watch his new ones, but now I'm going to use this series to dig into some of his older ones. And this one is about a young man, Antonio Banderas, who's in a lot of Almodovar films. <laughs> He's freed from a mental hospital, and he immediately, just right away, goes and kidnaps a woman from his recent past a woman he's absolutely obsessed with. And he kidnaps her and ties her down until she falls in love with him. And Banderas is so good looking that it, like in one scene he puts on a fake wig to try to like be in disguise and I'm like that's how he looks in the movie Assassins like he's just like that's how he looks at Desperado like he could just pull it off oh my god it's so funny um Eno Marconi does a score it's great Almodovar loves rich colors he loves outrageous characters to enjoy a movie like this, you have to accept that there are very, very eccentric people in the world out there. Very few people make movies about these people. Almodovar does. That's why I love him. It was a great one. I've never seen a bad Almodovar film. I love him. So this was fun. Got to talk about some PTA influences. Got to talk about some crazy love movies I've never seen. Another cool thing about this is that just by virtue of being on the app and being on the Criterion channel. I like rewatched Blood Simple with commentary like the Coen brothers and Barry Sonnenfeld who shot that movie do it's a one hour commentary where they have the John Madden like you know line pen where they're drawing on the screen and the, the all they do the entire time is point out the flaws in the movie like the photographical That's flaws funny. it's hysterical. So for what are you watching for the for this series for Criterion 22 I thought it'd be fun to double down and recommend a movie we've talked about today, like the one movie that we want people to see more than all of them, because I know we've recommended a lot, but I'll go first, and it's a no-brainer for me. It's absolutely The Honeymoon Killers. I recommend, highly recommend every movie I mention here, The Honeymoon Killers by Leonard Castle, which is available on the Criterion channel and on HBO Max right now. That's why I'm recommending it, because it's easy to watch, easy to find. Uh, you will not forget it, and it doesn't ask a lot of you, and it is it builds to moments that are nuts and shocking still. I, the only reason this was able to get made is because it was an independent production. No studio would have ever touched this. It's great. It's great. Honeymoon Killers. All right. I'm going to double down on Rockers. <laughs> that, nice. that is the movie that I'm definitely going to watch it, dude. I just it's just got a certain something to it, man. It's just magic. It's a hangout movie. Yeah, it's just something that. But if you let it and you fall into it, it just takes you. It, and, and I don't think it's by design. That I think is what I think the movie is so great at is like, I don't think that this movie was put together 
in a way where there was complete direction intent that this is what I'm doing with you. Right. Don't worry. Follow me. I think this is a movie that was energy infused and put together in a way that makes sense. That can happen. But yeah. I think it all just it, it is like lightning in a bottle. And it the movie is pure magic. And it's just so much fun. So I really recommend Rockers. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to watch it. I hope you have a chance to watch The Honeymoon Killers. But yeah, I mean, you've sold me. I'm going to go watch Rockers. I'm going to go watch the Romer short for sure. A successful first run of our first segment of Criterion 22 here. I'm really excited to revisit this every month. I have a loose idea of where I'm going to go for the next few months, but, but that's it. As always, thanks so much for listening and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. Send us mailbag questions at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com and we'll answer those on the show. Or find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, I'm going to talk about Steven Soderbergh's post-retirement career, namely his new thriller, Kimmy, which is on HBO Max right now and no one is watching. Stay tuned. I get to know something about you mm -hmm. that it's, it's very indicative. Ah, that's not the right word. It's very indicative of... Indicative. This person... Oh, f my. It's very indicative. Don't do it while you're clicking shit. I know. Jesus Christ. It's <laughs> indicative. It's very indicative.